And let's turn to the passage just read. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is where we'll be today. I was going to preach the gospel today, but we already kind of sang the gospel in those songs. And I'm still going to preach the gospel today, but it's good to sing about the truths of Christ, the redemption that was purchased for us, isn't it? That's a good reminder at Christmas time that the child born, the God who came, is the God who also died for our sins. Don't forget about that at Christmas. Today, as we look to Ecclesiastes 8, 1 through 17, I have entitled this message today, Ode to Wisdom. Ode to Wisdom. And that's because I see in Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon espousing the great virtues of what the Hebrews called chokmah, wisdom. And that's a very important book, uh, sorry, very important word in the Old Testament, wisdom or chokmah. And we're in right now in Ecclesiastes what are referred to as the wisdom books of the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And wisdom is described extensively in the books that Solomon wrote, namely Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And, and there's a lot of talk about chokmah, wisdom, because it's an incredibly valuable and sought-after attribute. Solomon says several times to pursue wisdom over all the other pursuits of life. Pursue it more than you would pursue silver and gold, says Solomon. And I love passages like Ecclesiastes 8 that speak positively about wisdom. Because, you know, just speaking from the heart this morning, that's something that I have sought out after my whole life. And not my whole life, actually. When I was a kid, I've shared this before. When, when I was real young, I was, can I use this term? I was kind of a meathead, all right? All I cared about was sports and hanging out with my friends. I, I, I didn't read much. I see a lot of the kids here at Harvest Decatur that read a lot. I wasn't like that as a kid. I didn't read anything. The only thing that I read was the sports section in the newspaper. In fact, when uh, we would go out to lunch on Sunday afternoon, I would you know, beg my dad for quarters so I could go buy the Sunday newspaper. And I'd go and I'd get it and I'd read it. And whenever we would go out to lunch with people, people would say like, wow, that's amazing. Your kid must be really bright reading the newspaper. <laughs> and I had them totally fooled because the only thing I ever read in that newspaper was the the sports section. I wanted to know who won the college football games on Saturday night. And I wanted, you know, this is before the internet, okay? This is the 1980s when we had newspapers. And I wanted to read the articles about the NFL games that were playing that day and, and maybe the funny papers too. That's all I cared about in the newspaper. And all of that changed for me, you know, this, this kid that was obsessed about sports when I was about 13. My youth pastor challenged me to read the book of Proverbs. And so here I was, this sports-obsessed kid, reading the Bible for the first time, really not for Awanas, not for Sunday school, not at church, but on my own. I was reading the Bible, and I kept reading over and over in that book, in Proverbs, about the great value of something called wisdom. And I wanted it. I didn't want to just be a meathead the rest of my life. And so I started to pray for that thing that was said to be so valuable in the book of Proverbs. And similar to Proverbs here in Ecclesiastes, the old man Solomon is once again going to champion the virtues of wisdom. He's going to tell us to get wisdom if you can. Go get it. 
But he's also going to give us a caveat at the end of this chapter. This statement, this chapter comes with a disclaimer, and it goes like this. Yes, wisdom is good, but it's limited. Yes, wisdom is wonderful, but it's restricted. There are some things that are beyond finding out with human wisdom. And the reality of this life is that you really need more than just wisdom to find the meaning of life. You do. In fact, from a biblical theological perspective, as we put together the sum total of Scripture, you need not just wisdom, you need the perfect embodiment of wisdom, a man of true wisdom that surpasses even Solomon to find the true meaning of life. More on that before we're done, I promise. But first, let's talk about the benefits of wisdom, okay? Ode to wisdom, harvest decatur. Ode to wisdom. Write this down as number one in your notes. Solomon tells us in verse one of chapter eight that wisdom improves one's situation. That's the essence of what Solomon says in verse one. Wisdom improves your situation. To that you might say, no, Pastor Tony, ignorance is bliss. Is it though? Is it though? I mean, I mean, that might be fun to say. I, I mean, I've said that before. Ignorance is bliss. And it might be fun to quote that adage, you know, like right before you take a test at school. But, you know, at 43 years old, let me just tell you this morning, ignorance ain't bliss. And all things being equal, you're better off being wise than ignorant. That's a brilliant statement right there. Write that down. You're better off being wise than ignorant. You're better off seeking the Lord and gaining the wisdom that he offers you to improve your situation. Here's how Solomon says it in verse 1. He says, who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Those are some good rhetorical questions alluding to the fact that wisdom, real wisdom in this world is pretty rare. And then he says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. Wisdom makes your face light up. Now listen, the face in Hebrew, the face, that's a very important idea or concept in Hebrew thought because you derived a person's spiritual and emotional state by their face, by what we would call their countenance, a person's countenance. You talked with people face to face. Moses spoke, in a manner of speaking, face-to-face -face with God in the book of Exodus. That was a description of intimacy and connection. And that connection to the Lord made Moses' face light up. And what Solomon is saying here is there's a way to make your face light up. It's the wisdom that God gives you. And the hardness of your face can actually change if you have wisdom. Your countenance can be changed if you have wisdom. Wisdom does that for you. It makes your face shine. If you remember in... In the book of Daniel, you remember Daniel and his three friends, they wouldn't eat the meat that the Babylonians gave them. They only wanted to eat vegetables. And it says about them that their appearance, their countenance was better than the other young men that were there. Their, their faithfulness to the Lord, their wisdom made their face light up and shine. Sonny and I, we were watching Jeopardy the other day on TV it's, it's kind of sad. Jeopardy is not the same without Alex Trebek anymore. It's just sad. And it's not the same, but I'll tell you what is the same. Whenever you have those contestants on Jeopardy and they answer a question right, you know, when they 
get it correct, you can see their face light up. Even people who are like, you know, emotionally challenged, their face still lights up. And then you can see also when they don't get the answer right or when they lose points or money in that game show, their face is downcast, right? And that's just a little picture there that, that wisdom, that knowledge, that discernment makes your face light up. And it's more than just regurgitating facts on Jeopardy. You know, when you, when you use your life experience to help another person, when you have wisdom and then you offer that to another person, that, that makes your life brighten up. When you, when you have something encouraging, when you have wisdom to bless somebody else with or encourage somebody else with, that's incredibly rewarding. Wisdom, it makes your, your face glow. Proverbs 3.13 says this, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver or her profit better than gold. She, wisdom, is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Also in Proverbs 3, it says that the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. These are the passages that I read at age 13, and I said, I got to get some of that. Whatever that is, I got to get that wisdom, because this, this is going to be a, an adornment around my neck. This is going to be life for my soul. Even James in the New Testament, James 1 verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So wisdom improves your situation in life. It makes your countenance light up. It makes your face shine. And secondly, here's another advantage to wisdom. Write this down as number two. Wisdom teaches one prudence. Wisdom teaches one prudence. Solomon says in verse two, he says, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, this section, I'll be honest, it's a little odd because Solomon, as a king, is going to tell you how to interact with and counsel a king. So it's a little bit self-serving here, what Solomon says. But the main idea here is to use prudence, to use wise discretion when you interact with a superior, when you interact with the authorities. Keep the king's command. Basically, don't be rash. Don't be haughty when you're standing before the king. And don't, in the presence of the king, be on the side of evil. Why? Because, verse 2, God's oath to him. Whenever a king was king in Israel, he would make an oath before God, and the people would make an oath before the king that they would follow the king as if they were following God, because the king was God's representative to the people. And so Solomon says, that's a serious oath. You know, don't, don't take that lightly. Do you remember when David was being chased by King Saul? And Saul wanted to kill David. And David had two opportunities in the caves of Judah to take Saul's life. Two times he could have killed King Saul. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to kill the king, even though King Saul was a wicked king. David wouldn't do it. Solomon says in verse 3 here, be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Don't be rash. Don't be hasty. Don't take your stand in an evil cause, for he, the king, does whatever he pleases. 
For the word of the king is supreme, verse 4. And who may say to the king, what are you doing? Now here's where the wisdom comes in. Here's where the prudence comes in. There is a kind of pragmatic assessment here. The king is king for a reason. So don't find yourself between a rock and a hard place opposing the king. Don't oppose the king. That would be unwise. Don't be rash in his presence. Don't be contrarian without a good reason. And don't take your stand in an evil cause. If the king finds out that you are part of a coup, or that you're deceiving him for some self-serving reason, your head will hang from the gallows. This is practical in Solomon's day. Don't do that. Don't find yourself opposing the king. That would not be wise. That would not be prudent. Now, I do need to remember, and this is just, let me just, paint a historical picture for you. In the Old Testament, we did have kings, but we also had these other people that were given authority by the Lord. They were called prophets. And there were people that God used, these prophets, to speak to the king and and to say, thus says the Lord to the king. There was what you might say a a division of, of authority. There were checks and balances within Israelite's kingdom. There were also priests. And a priest couldn't be a king. A priest was from the tribe of Levi. The kings, Solomon and his sons, were for the tri- from the tribe of Judah. So a priest couldn't be a king, and a king couldn't be a prophet necessarily. There was this division of labor, division of authority, and there were checks and balances. And sometimes these prophets would get right in the king's face and tell him some stuff. And I, I mean, we talked about Nathan last week who came to David and rebuked him to his face. And that was not uncommon. We see that with people like Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. And that's, that's a check that God had ordained for the kings in the Old Testament world. And, and you've got to be careful as a prophet. When you come before a king, you better make sure that what you're saying is from the Lord. And you're not just making stuff up. Because if you're making stuff up and the king finds out about it, you can find yourself in a precarious position before him. Even sometimes when you were speaking for the Lord as a prophet, you found yourself in a precarious position. King Zedekiah threw Jeremiah into a dungeon and then threw him into a muddy pit because Jeremiah kept prophesying from the Lord. Jeremiah didn't stop. He just kept prophesying because he had something he had to say from the Lord. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. It's a little bit of hyperbole here in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. Yes, that may be true as a generalization. More often than not, it's better for you to obey the law. More often than not, it's better for you to obey the government. Let me say that publicly. You're better off paying your taxes on time. You're better off driving the speed limit. You're better off not murdering people. You're better off not starting a Ponzi scheme and bilking people out of millions of dollars. That's better. For you to do that. But here, let me, let me say this. And I said this when I preached through Romans, especially Romans 13. There are times when we must be obedient to God instead of men. And that's quite clearly presented in the scripture. You remember when Peter and John stood before the Jerusalem leaders. And these Jerusalem leaders told them to stop talking about Jesus. And what did they say? They said, We must obey God rather than men. In other words, 
Be under the authority of the king. But when the king, when when his statements, when his commands are in conflict with God, you have a higher authority. You have to be obedient to God. That's why Jeremiah kept prophesying, even though the king didn't like it. And Solomon says, there's a time the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. A time when maybe you have to defect, when you have to speak out, when you have to disobey even the king. I read this last week about a German soldier. His name is Helmut von Moltke. And he actually was drafted to work in counterintelligence for Nazi Germany in the 1930s, 1940s. And this guy, Helmut von Moltke, was a a strong Christian man. And he opposed Nazi Germany. He opposed Hitler. And, And so when he got drafted to work in counterintelligence, he actually used his high position to reach prisoners, to rescue prisoners, to, to oppose the Third Reich and actually to take down the Third Reich. And because of that, he eventually got caught and he got tried for his actions. And when he appeared before the judge, so he, here he is, you know, before a Nazi judge talking about why he had opposed Hitler. And, and the judge said to Moltke, he said, only in one respect does Nazism resemble Christianity. We demand the whole man. That's really insightful. The judge said, Nazism is like Christianity because Christianity demands a whole man. We demand the whole man too. So where's your allegiance, Moltke? And the judge actually asked him, from whom do you take your orders? From the other world or from Adolf Hitler? From Christ or from your political leader? Where does your loyalty and your faith lie? And Moltke, he took his orders from Christ and they put him to death. And they killed him. Sometimes we have to defy the government in order to obey Christ. And that's, I mean, that's littered throughout church history. That's true in the Bible. Uh, Every time I say that, I I just got to be careful because I I know you talk about government and obeying the king or let's say the authorities in our own day. There's always those individuals, those Americans, even those Christians that are like, I'm ready to disobey the government, Pastor Tony. Just give me the authority. You know, (laughs) We're, we're just ready for, we're spoiling for a fight with the government. And I, I mean, I get that. I'm from Texas, you know. We, we have an awkward relationship with government, especially big government. But, but there is a mentality that I think goes against what Scripture would teach in terms of, you know, just, just, just give me a chance. Give me a chance to disobey. I'm ready to disobey. Almost like we would prefer anarchy to any kind of authority within our lives. And you know what? I see this error with Christians. I see this error with Americans on the right and on the left. I see it with people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, and I see it with other people who say, let's defund the police. I don't like any of those philosophies. I don't think that's taken us anywhere good, either of those. And I think both of those are disobedient to what the Bible says. In the New Testament, Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So yes, there's a time for civil disobedience, but don't be in a hurry to get to that place. Solomon says this in verse 6. He says, For there is a time and a way for everything. That sounds like Ecclesiastes 3, doesn't it? A time and a time. I won't sing that again. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him. 
Y'all see that in verse 6? Who's the him in verse 6? For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. There's some debate about this, but I, I actually think that that's Solomon's reference to the king. Talking about how it's, it's hard to be king because man's troubles lie heavy. Man's evil is another way to translate that. The evil of man lies heavy on the king. This is the Old Testament's way of saying uneasy lies the, wear, the head that wears the crown. It's tough being king. Why? Verse 7, for he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? Solomon's doing his best, but he doesn't know what the future holds. He doesn't know how to best lead his country in the future. And then he's going to die someday and turn the kingdom over to his idiot son, who's going to blow the kingdom up. That actually happened. That's a historical fact. No man has power to retain the spirit, says Solomon, verse 8. Or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Hopefully you see here the limitations of wisdom. As Solomon explains it, wisdom's good, but it only goes so far. Solomon was the wisest man in the world, but even his wisdom, he can't stave off death. He doesn't have power over death. He can't stop wars from happening. Verse 9, all this I observed says Solomon, while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Boy, that's a sad statement, verse 9. And there's a little bit of self-loathing here. Solomon's saying that no matter how hard he worked to apply his heart to all that he's done, all that's done under the sun he couldn't find a perfect solution for how men should rule over men. A king is just a man. He puts his pants on one leg at a time like everybody else. And a king is flawed just like every other man. And men having power over men leads to hurt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know that. And you might even wonder at the end of verse 9, who's the his? Who's his hurt? Who's the referent to that pronoun? A man had power over man to his hurt. Are we talking about the king, the king's hurt? Or are we talking about mankind's, mankind's hurt? I'm not so sure it's not both. In other words, Solomon is saying that man rules over man and it's imperfect. It's not ideal because men are imperfect and kings are imperfect. And we can't recreate Eden. We can't go back to Genesis 2. Because Genesis 3 actually happened. We can't escape the patterns of sinfulness and pain and war and devastation no matter how much wisdom we acquire, no matter how wise our king is, no matter how great our rulers are. And I mean, and you can see that just in the kings of Israel. If you look through the history of the kings, failure, 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 failure. Even David, failure, big time. I mean, you look through even modern day history with Mother England, you know, those kings and queens, failure, 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 failure. I mean, it's not a pretty picture, really, at all. You might say, well, we solved that problem, Pastor Tony. We got rid of King George. We're Americans. We don't need no king. So we fixed that problem with kings ruling over us. Yeah, maybe that worked for us a little bit. That didn't work out so good for France. They guillotined their 
king and then they ended up with something worse than him. That didn't work in Russia. They put King Nicholas II to death and they ended up with Lenin, Stalin, and communism. That wasn't better. And the problem is, it's not really king, it's men ruling over men, that's, that's problematic. You're going to have problems, no matter who you, who you elect or who is appointed for you as king. I've said this before, and it's probably been the one, one of the main themes of my preaching. I see in human behavior as I look out, even on Americans, that there is this intense human longing for a good and righteous king to rule over us. We want that so bad. We read fairy tales about it. You know, we read about people like King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table. We read, we read about King Richard, the Lionhearted, hoping he'll come back. We read the Lord of the Rings and the Return of the King, and we think, boy, it'd be great to have a king that ruled justly and righteously. We want that so desperately. I see that even in America with our presidents. Every four years, we trot out the next political leader like he's going to be or she's going to be some Messiah to save us all. And we're so happy until about 48 hours into that president's reign. And we're like, this ain't working. It's got to be somebody better than this. And there's this longing in the human heart for a king who doesn't fail us, who is perfectly righteous in every way. Is there such a king? More on that later. Let's go back to wisdom. So Solomon says, let's review here. Solomon says wisdom, it improves one's situation in this Genesis 3 world. That's good. And Solomon says that wisdom teaches one prudence. It teaches a person how to interact with the powers that be in this world and not to be rash and not to be self-serving and not to be hot-headed in the presence of authorities. Here's another thing that wisdom does. Write this down as number three. Wisdom gives one perspective. Number three, wisdom gives one perspective. Solomon says this in verse 10, and this is so good. Listen to this, Harvesticator. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used, the wicked, to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. The word for vanity there, you should know this word by now, is hevel. And what Solomon is describing here is a wicked person who people talk good about while they were alive and even after they're dead. And that happens in our world. That happens in our topsy-turvy, upside-down world sometimes. And you know it does. Have you ever been to a funeral where you know the people are stretching the truth to just say something good about the person in the casket? Y'all ever been to a funeral like that? I've been to a funeral like that. Or you ever been to a funeral where the, the eulogizer is waxing poetic about the dead person and you know that that person was more wicked than good. You know better than the eulogizer knows that that person was more wicked than good. Have you ever been to a funeral like that? I've been to a funeral like that. I've officiated funerals like that. And this is a kind of vanity, says Solomon. If I can just speak maybe culturally and 
and contemporarily for a moment, I remember, you know, when Hugh Hefner died a few years ago. And here's this guy who ran Playboy magazine. And when he died, the world just gushed and gushed and gushed about him. But how amazing Hugh Hefner was. And I, re I remember this was, it was so tone deaf because it was right in the middle of this whole hashtag Me Too movement and all these complaints and all of these scandals with Harvey Weinstein and others. And, and I, I kept thinking to myself, okay, so Hugh Hefner's great and Harvey Weinstein is immoral. Are people so dense that they can't draw the line between Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine and the Me Too scandals? I guess not. Why are they praising this horrible person that died? Look at verse 11. Here's another thing that brings consternation to Solomon. He says, because of the sentence against an evil deed, it's not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You know, why did Harvey Weinstein get away with what he was doing for years? Well, because he was powerful and because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. It's not expedited the way Solomon wants it to be expedited. Instantaneous retribution for sin. Why did Bernie Madoff get away with bilking people out of millions of dollars? Because he was powerful and the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. Why did Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell get away with their empire of sexual abuse and human trafficking? Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. And because of that, Solomon says the children of man is fully set to do evil. We're, we're you know, we're not going to be punished. Let's do it. Welcome back to Genesis 3. We're in Genesis 3 again. Solomon's talking about how evil our world is. And he's talking about how mankind is morally depraved. And to that, you might say, okay, well, if that's the way it is, Pastor Tony, if we can get away with evil... Why not just sin as much as we can? Why not just live like an animal and do whatever our carnal urges tell us to do? Just sin like crazy. Here's why. Look at verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life. How long did Hugh Hefner live? How old was he when he died? 91, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, says Solomon, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. How do you know that, Solomon? How do you know that? By the way, that doesn't sound like the cynic Solomon, that... That doesn't sound like the Solomon in Ecclesiastes 1 who said vanity of vanity, all is vanity. That sounds like Solomon in Proverbs. That sounds like Solomon got in a time machine, went back, and saying the same thing he said in Proverbs. Listen, one of the things that you notice as you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'm starting to notice this as we're nearing the end, is that, you know, Solomon gets closer and closer to his conclusion in chapter 12. And I used to think of Ecclesiastes, I used to think of this book like, a, like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You know, like, like he's leading you one way, and then all of a sudden at the end of the movie there's this twist, and you're like, whoa, wow, I wasn't seeing that. Bruce Willis is dead? No way. 
I kind of thought Ecclesiastes was like that. He's, he's all going one way, and at the end, he's like, fear God. That's the end of the matter. You're like, whoa, no way. I thought he was going somewhere else. And maybe there is still a little bit of that here, but I'll just tell you, you do have these clues throughout the book that the fear of God is important to Solomon, even in chapter 8, even before we get to chapter 12. And you get these clues that wisdom is important to Solomon. And even though it's mysterious, and even though it's unfair and complicated this life, it's still better to live wisely and God-fearingly than wickedly and foolishly. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Do you fear God, Harvesticator? Do you? Because they fear before him, verse 12, verse 13, but it will not be well with the wicked. Y'all listen up, young people. Take a note. It will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. I can't help but think that Solomon the cynic here is alluding to eternity. He already said, Ecclesiastes 3.11, that eternity is a man's heart. Maybe Solomon believes that even if a wicked person gets away with evil in this life, he will not enter into eternity unpunished. Even if Jeffrey Epstein gets away with sex trafficking in this life, he won't get away with it in the next life. When you read this passage, when you read verse 12 and verse 13, Solomon almost sounds like an orthodox Hebrew theologian. It's almost as if the old man Solomon, like I said, got in a time machine and went back and became the young idealistic Solomon. Talking about the goodness of wisdom and how it will bring good and how wickedness will bring evil in your life. It's almost like he has a renaissance here. Almost. Then he goes back to cynicism in verse 14, okay? And here's the gist of what he says at the end of this chapter. Yes, wisdom is good. Yes, wisdom will improve your state in life. Yes, wisdom gives you prudence. And yes, wisdom gives you perspective. But write this down as number four. Wisdom has its limitations. And here's how he frames it. Solomon says in verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. The good sometimes die young. Right? And the wicked sometimes die old. I wish it wasn't that way, but it, it is that way sometimes. The wise sometimes die early and the foolish sometimes live longer than, than they should. And living a righteous life is good and it's valuable, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to live a long, successful life. Like I said last week, life isn't karma. 
It's not an algorithm. Like, just plug it in. Do good, I'll live long. If I do bad, I'll die early. Life is not like that. I mean, generally speaking, yeah, there might be a truth to that, but there are these things in this world called anomalies. And life is not karma. And, and when you kind of step back and you think about it, there's a reason behind that that I think we can ascertain. Why did God do it that way? Why does God allow that? I was actually listening to Tommy Nelson talk about this this last week, and he made an observation that I thought was really insightful. And he said that, you know, if our good conduct was always rewarded with success, and if our evil conduct was immediately punished, then we wouldn't have to live our lives by faith. You know, if every time I had a quiet time in the morning and spent time with God, something good happened in my life, then the reason I would have quiet times in the morning is not because I fear God and love God, it's because I want something good to happen in my life. Like, like it becomes a superstitious kind of thing. And here's the example Tommy Nelson gave. You know, if on the opposite side of the extreme, if every time you told a lie or every time you cussed somebody, a tooth fell out of your mouth, you'd stop doing that, wouldn't you? Why are you doing that? Because you fear God and you love God and you want to serve? No, because I want all my teeth. And God didn't wire it that way. If every time you had an impure thought, you got a migraine, you would train yourself to stop having impure thoughts. Not because you fear God, not because you love God, but because of your own self-interest. Because it's better for you that way. And thankfully, we also have a God who doesn't offer instantaneous retribution too, you know? I'm glad my teeth don't fall out every time I lie. I'm glad I don't get struck by an asteroid every time I utter an evil word as I'm driving down, the, driving down the street in my car. I'm glad that God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and allowing even unrepentant sinners to repent and come to Christ. And one of the things that we discern in the New Testament is that God wants us to walk by faith, not just by self-interest. I think that's one of the main things that we learn from the book of Job. Because what did Satan say about Job? He's just following you for the, the goodies. He's just following you, God, because you, you bless him. Take away the blessings and he'll, he'll curse you. Job passed that test. Would you pass that test? Sometimes good people do perish. Sometimes bad people do prosper. And Jesus said that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And we were talking about that in small group this last week. And someone in my small group said, you know, if, if, if a tornado came through Decatur and just ripped up all the houses in Decatur and only ripped up the houses of unbelievers but didn't touch the houses of believers, then everybody would become a Christian. Not because they love God and they fear God and they want to follow God, because they don't want their houses torn up by tornadoes. And God doesn't work it that way. God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Life isn't ruled by karma. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Look at verse 15. And then Solomon says this. This is... It's pretty fascinating. And I commend joy. You're like, really? Okay. Didn't see that coming. There's almost this sense like, you know, Solomon seeking wisdom, 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 and he, he just can't figure it all out. So just, you know, just be joyful as best you can. Don't wear yourself out. Try to be too wise. 
and I commend joy, says Solomon, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What Solomon is saying here is that sometimes good things happen to bad people, sometimes bad things happen to good people. There's no logic to this necessarily. There's no algorithm that you can plug into to acquire wisdom. So don't try to solve this. Just enjoy life as best you can. Just eat and drink and enjoy the days that you have alive. alive. You know why? Because you'll be dead soon. So enjoy yourself as best you can. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this. You can read this on the screen. This is from his book, Life Together. He said, our life is not only a great deal of trouble and hard work, it is also refreshment and joy in God's goodness. Amen. Praise God for that. We labor, says Bonhoeffer, but God nourishes and sustains us. There is a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day. Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out of the work that is done under the sun. However much man may seek, may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, wisdom is good, but it has limitations. Wisdom is better than ignorance. Ignorance ain't bliss. Wisdom ain't bliss either. But wisdom is better than ignorance. And yet, wisdom falls short of understanding everything that God does in our world. And, and Solomon is saying this is the wisest man who ever lived. And it didn't work for him. Wisdom finding out everything that God was doing in the world and doing in his life. And that's because God's ways are finding out even the wisest man in the world. And, and all of this talk at the end of chapter 8, it actually reminded me of this moment where Paul was writing in Romans. And if you remember Romans, you know, this, this is the greatest doctrinal treatise ever written especially chapters 1 through 11. I mean, it's just doctrinally beautiful. And, you know, Paul just goes on pages and pages and pages of beautiful, clear, theological truth. And then at the end of chapter 11, it's, it's like he, he gets exhausted by all of his reasoning and he just starts erupting in praise before the Lord. And he says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For he knows the mind of the Lord. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So Paul, writing for 11 chapters, doctrinal truth, just gets to the end of it. He says, you know, God's ways are inscrutable. I can't even reason it out anymore. Kind of like Solomon does here. Solomon, the wisest man in the Old Testament, Paul, the wisest man in the New Testament, apart from Christ, wrote 13 books of the New Testament. At some point, he gets to the end. He says, my human wisdom can't hold a candle to God's wisdom, and his ways are inscrutable. His judgments are unsearchable. 
So to all that, you might say, okay, Pastor Tony, wisdom has limitations. Should we seek wisdom then? Should we desire to be wise? Should we desire knowledge and prudence and instruction? Like the book of Proverbs says, yes, 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 yes. Seek that. Should we fear God as the beginning of wisdom? Absolutely you can't, and you should. But you need to realize that your wisdom will have limitations and your capacity to understand God's ways and God's plans. That's incomplete. And here's another thing from a New Testament perspective. Wisdom, whatever wisdom you gain, won't help you get to the bottom of what God is doing in our world. And you know what else? It won't save your soul. You're not saved by being wise or by growing wise. Paul, who was also called Saul in the New Testament, was the wisest man in the world before he became a Christian. He knew more about God. He knew more about the Old Testament scriptures than any person who was alive, and yet he was a murderer. He was an opponent to Christ Jesus. He was an enemy of the church. His wisdom didn't save his soul. That's, you might say, okay, Pastor, well, what does save a person's soul if wisdom doesn't save a person's soul? What does save a person's soul? This might sound a little contradictory, but here's my answer to that. Wisdom from God saves a person's soul. And by that, I mean 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. When I say wisdom from God, I mean Jesus Christ, who according to Colossians 2, verse 3, in Christ is found all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ we have wisdom. In Christ we have better wisdom than the wisdom of Solomon in the Old Testament. In Christ, also, we have a better king than the Solomon of the Old Testament. A true and better king. A king who will live and reign forever with justice and equity and impartiality, punishing forever those who are evil and rewarding forever those who are righteous. When I was 13 years old, just go back to what I said at the beginning, I read the book of Proverbs and I said, Lord, give me wisdom. And you know what? God has answered that prayer in my life in ways that I would have never expected. He has. But you know, I prayed another prayer even before that. When I was about age six. And I didn't say, give me wisdom. You know what I said when I was six? Give me Jesus. Wisdom's good. Jesus is better. Pray with me.
Lord Jesus, we testify this morning that you are wisdom from God. You are the embodiment of true wisdom, perfect wisdom. You are true and better than the wisdom of Solomon, and you are a true and better king than King Solomon. And Lord, our hearts do long for your perfect righteous reign. We want a king. And we have one in you. And we anticipate your return. When you would put you will put every wrong thing right. And you will establish a perfect kingdom of justice and righteousness and equity and impartiality. Lord, I pray that Harvest Decatur, this church, would be a wise church seeking the truth of your word, fearing God as the beginning of wisdom. God, these are perilous times. These are confusing times. We need wisdom. We need prudence. We need discernment. So I pray for that, Lord. And at the same time, we know that wisdom is incomplete. It's limited. More than anything, we need Jesus, our Savior. Lord, we believe We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in His death. We believe in His resurrection. We sang songs about Your kingship already. We sang songs about the salvation You purchased for us. The Gospel is so good, Lord. So thank You, Lord Jesus, for saving our souls. Thank you for coming to this earth and dying for our sins, Lord. We surrender our lives to you. We acknowledge that you are true and better wisdom from above. You are a true and better king, King Jesus. Amen, church.